right, fellas. We ready to have some fun time? Let's do it. All right, Ty, you ready? Let's go. All right. Timeout, Tyler. Who are we taking the timeout with today? Well, thank you, Kevin. And today, ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, we have Tom O'Connor, president at Al Siegel Community of Agencies. Uh, Tom, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Kevin and I are fired up to have, have you. We all know what Al Siegel is in Rochester. And Kevin and I want to know, first question, where's your favorite spot to eat, Tom? We don't care about presidents, CEOs. We care about food. Where <laughs> are you taking Kevin and I out to eat if we're going out to eat this afternoon? All right. If we were going out to eat this afternoon, we'd probably have to go get ourselves a garbage plate. That, that would right. be the first thing, right? Now, I used to like the, uh, the place that was down on the bay that they just knocked down for a park. So we're going to have to find a new waterfront place to go. That's, that would be my take, right? Because this time of year, you got to be on the water. So we're yes, going to someplace yes, you can either boat up to, take a jet ski to, or uh, ride the motorcycle up to. But we're going to go someplace with some water and some views. That I can get behind. I mean, after uh, what a decade, it feels like of uh, no sun here in Rochester. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the long COVID season, right? <laughs> All right. Well, we're on my boat. It's called the Dirty Oar, Tom. And you asked me to play your favorite song on repeat. What song are we listening to while we're pulling up for those garbage plates? All right. Well, it's on my ringtone, and uh, most people who know me know this. Uh, Everlong, Foo Fighters. Wow. And it makes the ringtone. (laughs) I love it. All right. Everlong, love love some foo, man. I love me some 90s for sure. I'm a a 90s guy, you know. Yeah. Era. It will never get old. I think the kids think it's boring nowadays, you know, when you like play it. They're like, Allison Chains is like, let's get to like the the beat. You're like, this is the beat. Yeah. But I love it. But it's a real beat. It's a drummer who actually knows how to play. You know, what a, what a, what a concept. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, it's fun going back to the nineties, especially being like, would these songs make it today? And in my head, I'm like, of course they would. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, but Tom, I, w- I wanted to ask you, man, uh, I don't care if you play golf or not. Kevin and I are huge golfers, but if we're all going to you know, play a, th- a threesome today and we're, uh, we're scrambling versus another threesome, who are we playing against? Oh, Aaron, Aaron the world. Rogers. Josh Allen and uh, Patrick Mahomes, right? I don't want Brady anywhere near us. That guy's got enough going on. <laughs> I only caught a bit of that. It was it was quite the. Uh, I don't know who planned it for a Wednesday, but uh, I don't know how hot of a day that would be for everybody to watch that. But I guess because the tournament started today for the regular regular PGA, but they looked yeah. human. That was the best part of not watching PGA Tour golfers. I saw them actually make some uh, some mistakes, which was great to see. Well, I didn't, I didn't see it all live, but I heard about it today at lunch and uh, a couple of people were like, you know, Aaron Rodgers looks like he could actually play on the PGA tour. And, you know, it's the same thing. Isn't that enough? Like you're already world-class quarterback and you can also be a PGA level golfer. Come on, man. Jeopardy guys. He killed Jeopardy too. It's like enough, man. (laughs) Aaron, we get it. You're amazing. (laughs) Right. Right. How many different ways? Well, Tom, the other the other favorite thing that we like to ask too is because I think you get to learn a lot of a lot about people from from some of the movies that they choose to choose to watch. My, one of mine being uh, "Remember the Titans" has always been one of my favorites. What is uh, what is your all time favorite movie and why? Oh, oh, all time favorite movie. That's uh, that's hard, but I'm gonna. It, that's really hard because there's so many different styles and right. Um, I love Shawshank Redemption. Oof. You know, if you got seven hours, you can watch it on public TV, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
but you know, like, uh, and then Pulp Fiction was a phenomenal movie. I mean, and then, you know, I grew up in the 80s, so I liked some John Hughes movies as well. So, I mean, that's, that, that, that's a tough question. And then right now you've got uh, Maverick in theaters, which was the Top Gun reboot, right? I haven't yeah. seen it yet, but, you know, that was a fun movie when I was in college. So, yeah. I just I, watched Ice and uh, Iceman and, uh, and and Goose, and I just watched it on Netflix because it was like, okay. like oh, shit, I haven't yeah. seen this movie in forever. I'm going to throw this on. <laughs> Tom Cruise looks young and handsome. Oh, my God. The guy doesn't age. He's also doesn't, doesn't age. He's not going to – I don't think he's going to age because he's not big enough to age. Yeah. You know, he's only 5'5", five, five, you know? So the package is just going to stay the same, you know? <laughs> That's, I, that's my take on it, right? You know? God, I hope you're right. We've got a lot more weight to carry around. You know, we're bigger <laughs> frame. Things get sore. But he, you know, he's 59 and he's 5'5". Five five. It is what it is, you know? It is what it is. Yeah, I, he's got no wrinkles. The guy doesn't, the guy does not age. No, Maybe it's from eating no. that placenta all those years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to jump in, Tom, because I know you. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of El Siegel myself and have been a, a member of the commu- uh, committee for quite some time for the sports. But I want to learn and kind of turn the dial back, if you will, and walk Tyler and I through that first day that maybe you got that president's role there at El Siegel. Who did you call? Who was the first person you reached out to? And how the heck did you find your way at El Siegel? Okay, so let me let me let me go back a little bit further than that for you first, because uh, the easier way would be I also started as a volunteer on the sports committee. Wow! So you you and I have that same experience. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Yeah, I am. Uh, I was uh, I was a volunteer on the sports committee uh, representing Gannett newspapers. I was with Gannett newspapers for 16 years before I came to Al Siegel. I was on the sports committee and I was attending a meeting. Um, of, of the sports committee and Dan Myers, my predecessor, announced that uh, he said, you know, taste a, a little bit of a bittersweet day. Our marketing director just uh, gave notice. So we're going to be looking for a VP of marketing. And at the time, I was the marketing director for the Democrat and Chronicle here in Rochester. And uh, I walked out in the parking lot with Dan because I knew Dan was one of those one of a kind nonprofit leaders, very well respected in the industry. And uh, I just thought, boy, this is an interesting opportunity. Let me let me go out and, you know, have a chat with him. And Dan said, uh, Tom, what are you thinking? You've got this great career with Gannett newspapers. You've got a young family. You know, what what would make you think that you want to come to work here? And I said, well, uh, A, you know, there's the work-life balance thing. Um, that, that's a huge thing. B, I was in an in- industry that was changing dramatically um, and, and didn't necessarily feel as comfortable with some of the direction. You know, they were still figuring out where they were going. And I loved my first 12 years at Gannett, but I was there 16. Um, and the last four were very different than the first 12. Um, and, and so watching that industry change and its response to it, um, you know, how they were trying to handle the digital environment, it was, it was, a, it was an adjustment. Um, and so, you know, I, I was, it was appealing to me to go to work for a place that had an impact, um, that had a different kind of work-life balance. I had spent a lot of time traveling and didn't, you know, I, anybody who's been in an airport in the last decade knows that there's nothing, nothing uh, illustrious or fun about air travel anymore, right? You know, like it used to be, oh, you get dressed up and you, you feel like you're somebody important. And now you're just, you know, they're herding you right onto the planes, maybe if they've got one. Um, and it's just different. So I said, okay, I'm getting out of this. Um, so I came, I, I, I walked with Dan. Uh, we talked about the opportunity. He said, you know, what we need is somebody who can basically serve as an ad agency for these for these agencies. They're independent. Uh, they all operate on their own budgets, their own leadership, but they 
they do need creative help, websites, marketing, annual appeals, fundraising, all of that. And uh, I just thought it was a great opportunity. So I jumped in, that was 2008. Now here's the funny part of this from a financial standpoint. I joined in uh, June, end of June, beginning of July of 2008. And the market went, you know, that's, that's when the whole world fell apart was that fall. So here I, I come to work for a nonprofit and we're on the world, right? And uh, I think somebody used the term, you know, the economy is cratering. And uh, and I'm working for a nonprofit who's saying, you know, boy, are we going to go down to like a four-day work week or, you know, how are we going to navigate this? So here I went from a for-profit, you know, company that had its, had its challenges, frankly, but it was still, you know, it's still charting a course to a nonprofit that was really struggling with the impact of the economic crisis in 2008. And that was the housing bubble burst and the whole thing. So the good news is, is that we had a plan. Uh, we had a secondary plan. We worked through that plan and, and you know, obviously emerged from it, but uh, that was the start. So, you know, I tell people the adjustment from a nonprofit to a for-profit and vice versa is really about the resources to start with. Uh, and, that, and that's not even, you know, adjustable based on what's happening around you. Nice, Tom. Well, that, that's a that's an interesting start. It seems like you quit the newspaper right as the iPhone came out, man. So <laughs> it was a good time right there, dude. Um, you know, because we all know I, I used to sing newspapers down in Arkansas. And uh, I remember when uh, yeah, the iPhone came out and the kids were like, what's a newspaper? What's a magazine? You know, right. Um, I think that was right at 09, if I'm not mistaken. Well, uh, well, well, Tyler, for what it's worth, we were all carrying Blackberries and we thought we were the bomb, you yeah. know? <laughs> So, do you yes. remember the Palm Pilots? Those were even before. I do. Yes. <laughs> yes. I had one. I couldn't get it to do anything for me. No, you know? did nothing, so, but it looked cool as hell. <laughs> right. Oh, let me check my calendar. You know, then you flip open this monochrome screen, right? So, Tom, I got to ask you, looking back from where you are now, you know, a, a president of a nonprofit, um, I think Kevin and I are close to being one of those someday. You know, we're getting closer and closer as the days go. go. And I, I still don't know how. Right. Well, how do you make the, the transition or, or how do you get into being is it do you have to be in a company as an operator, like a VP of operations and then be a, a hoisted or how do you how do you apply to be a president of, of a nonprofit or a company in general? Sure. That's a that's a great question, Tyler. And I really I didn't I didn't completely answer you in my response. So let me let me further that a little bit. So I took over as the VP of marketing. And then uh, about maybe three to four years into that, uh, we had an operations vice president position created or become available. And, and I jumped into that. So that, that then gave me really the launching pad to understand the better aspects of the business. Because the marketing part, you're, you're certainly involved in the fundraising. I was aware of the foundation. I was, in, you know, I was involved in kind of tell, storytelling. Um, but when I got into this, the operation side, that's when I really started to understand the management of the facilities, the real estate portion of our business, which is a big portion of the portfolio. Um, and I got more exposure to some of the investment committees and some of the other things that, we, you know, that we have going on. Uh, and I got a better sense of the number of committees and, and folks that were around the table, the connections within the community. So that helped. Um, and then, uh, I, so I was the VP of operations until 2016 and Dan Myers had announced his retirement. Um, and they did a national search and, and initially, uh, in full disclosure, I didn't put my hand up, um, I, the, there was a search committee formed. Um, they started the work. They hired a recruiter. They were, you know, they were engaged in that work. And I interviewed um, initially with a recruiter just as a staff member. 
and uh, was asked if I was interested. And I said, not really. Dan Myers was a legend. Um, I didn't really want to follow a legend. I'd seen some other nonprofit executives do that uh, without a lot of success in this community. Um, and, and Dan is a one of a kind kind of guy. So I was like, boy, you know, you don't you don't step into that if you don't have to. Uh, and then uh, the reality set forth was I saw the job description and I heard the executive or excuse me, the search committee chair announce in a board meeting that they were not looking for the next Dan Myers. They were looking for the next leader of Al Siegel. And here were some of the skill sets that they felt they needed. Uh, here were the things that they desired uh, for the position. And as I read the job description, uh, I started to realize that there were a number of initiatives that I felt personally responsible to and for. And I, and, I, and I started to realize that I'm pretty competitive, um, although I'm, I, I don't have to win, I hate to lose. Um, but I realized that I was looking at this job description and I was saying, hey, wait a minute, uh, a lot of these things are things that I've been responsible for and, and, and I wanna see them nurtured and grow and thrive. And, and I started to realize, well, wait a minute, uh, do you wanna do that under somebody else's leadership or are you ready? Um, so I did. I had a number of conversations with some, some of my mentors, folks that I've you know, gotten good feedback from and said, hey, what do you think? And uh, to, almost to a person, everybody said, you know, it's time. You, 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 know, you know the organization, you know, the, you know the, the, the politics of it, if you will, and I don't think we're all that political, um, but you, you understand the structure and it's a complex structure. Um, and you've been doing a lot of the work inside. And then, you know, the benefit I always had was Dan Myers was me. Uh, he's a friend, a great friend. And I knew if I needed him at any point in time, he was a phone call away. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and that's somebody who'd been here for 30 years. So when you can tap into that, that's really helpful. Uh, and then the other part of it, guys, you know, for me, I was very fortunate. I have a team that I assembled around me, but two or three of those members have been with this organization for over a decade. And in some cases, we've got folks that have been here for three and four decades. So, when you have that kind of institutional knowledge around you as well, you don't, you know, we've got a guy on our team who says, you know, it's not what you know, it's what you don't know, right? Um, but in this case, we've got some folks who've been here and seen it and could say, hey, you know, we stepped on that line, landmine 15 years ago, and maybe you shouldn't. Um, and <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough to follow advice. You know? <laughs> and ask questions and listen, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Listening's cute, right? It is. And I think you touched on something else that's really important is that bi-directional mentorship. I, I think having obviously the gentleman that uh, you keep referring to and it is well known in Rochester, um, just having them him in your back pocket to run by any questions, any scenarios, situations, how he would have potentially handled it. I think sometimes having that is, is, is unfortunately in some a lot of organizations, succession planning is, is, is not a priority. So they don't have that opportunity to pass that institutional knowledge to that next person, especially given today. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to go back to is that you talked about is that you assumed a role during potentially the most recent economic downturn, similar to what we experienced during the pandemic. Um, ca catastrophic in some cases. Some I'm sure the not Al Siegel wasn't even sure if they would have their doors open tomorrow, even during the pandemic at times, right? Um, yep. What did you learn in those initial days within 2008 that better prepared you as a leader for, for what happened to over two and a half years ago now? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, the first thing was the ideas, you know, the ideas were multiple and we didn't lock into one direction completely. You know, we said, let's be flexible here. 
and let's have a couple of different scenarios that we're gonna we're gonna try to go in in the event of right. So here's plan A, and then you know it may not be linear. We may have to jump to D, you know, but let's let's at least have a plan for what we're gonna do. And and you know going back to 2008, but certainly during the pandemic as well, that that became a, a question of staffing. That became a question of you know who's going to be where. Uh, are the doors going to be open? What days are they going to be open? What kinds of things we're going to do, do need to do to be safe, uh, be generating revenue, uh, being stewards of, of funds that people have given us and, and you know we're responsible for. So there's a lot of variables that come into play. But certainly 2008, I think, gave us uh, a framework. To, to think about and not move so quickly or be indecisive. You do have to make a decision. Um, but then at that point it became uh, let's let's you know be smart about the direction if we can. But you know the pandemic was interesting because to my knowledge, you know, no one around me or around this team had ever experienced anything like that. You know, we, we've seen economic downturns, there's been recessions, you know, inflationary pressures, all of that, but a pandemic was different. Um, and, and the extent that it still continues on in some ways is just remarkable. Um, so I think, you know, what I've learned here particularly, and I think one of the, the really gorgeous things about Al Siegel is it's a collaborative and we have, you know, I have access to other executive leadership, you know, from all of the other agencies here. And we, we are collaborative. We're not competitive. We're, we're you know, we, we really look at it in terms of, you know, what kinds of things can we do together? It's part of our mission to be, you know, achieving more together. Um, but to have a monthly meeting with the executive leadership of all these agencies and say, you know, what are we, what do we need to do to be responsive, you know, especially at the onset of the pandemic, mm -hmm. you know, when, when we were being mandated that, you know, you could have only 25% of your workforce on site and things like that. How do you, how do you manage that and keep folks gainfully employed throughout? So those were the, those were the problems that we were trying to solve. Um, but it was really helpful to be able to lean on each other and say, Hey, we're thinking about doing it this way. Um, and, and then, you know, be able to debate a little bit in a healthy way, you know, is that really the best direction? So we were learning as we were going. Somebody, you know, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard that 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 phrase many times, right? You're flying the airplane as you're building it. Um, we were definitely flying as we were building. Hmm. Might well, as well, I, might I as well start moving and then and figure it out rather than sitting there and, 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 and twisting your wheels, you know, in your head is what I hate. You know, I, I like to err on the side of action. Yeah. It doesn't always work out right. Yeah, but, right. Uh, you know, that's, uh, I'm, a, I'm a kind of, a, I'm, a, I'm your Huckleberry kind of guy, you know. I like to, you know, uh, do my best Doc Holiday impression and shoot from the hip quite often. Yeah. Um, and, and Tom, uh, we, we have a bunch of listeners down here in Texas now where I am. And I, we all, I, I keep asking them for feedback. And they're like, dude, we have CEOs and presidents about their company. And I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, because, you know, when I was up in the, the 585, you know, everyone knew what the Al Siegel was. Well, you kind of, I'm, I'm trying to toss you a, a, a high and tight fastball here so you can knock over the green monster. You know, can you just kind of, <laughs> on a high level, let us know what Al Siegel's about? Sure. So in a, in a simplest way, Al Siegel's a nonprofit. We're a collection of human service special needs. And Al Siegel is the real estate provider for it. We're a nonprofit real estate company. We provide spaces that are uniquely designed for these agencies below market rate. Uh, you know, that's one of the benefits of being a nonprofit. And in addition to that, because somebody will say, oh, okay, if I'm from Texas, I'm gonna call you a landlord, right? But we're a little different because we have a foundation and our foundation gives uh, philanthropic support back to our member agencies. 
So that's, that's different than most real estate companies. You certainly aren't going to find a landlord who says, hey, you know what I was thinking? I was going to give you back something uh, this year. That's what we do. And that's what really differentiates us from any other kind of real estate company. Uh, you know, the model in, in and of itself would be innovative. When you add the component of, of philanthropic support, that takes it over the top. And I don't know, Tyler, where you are in Texas, but there's an example down there. It's a social purpose real estate uh, called Serve Denton. It's in, it's in Denton, Texas, and it's a, uh, Pat Smith is the executive director. And now I know I'm supposed to be talking about Al Siegel, but I'm part of a national nonprofit centers network, and Pat and I are colleagues, and I know he's just launched what looks like Al Siegel in Texas in wow. the last three or four years. It's wow. 15 minutes uh, north of me. Uh, Tom right? Denton is, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm down here between Fort Worth and Denton. Okay, Pat Smith, huh? Pat Smith, he's an awesome guy. He actually lived in Rochester or Fairport for a little bit. Look him up, tell him I sent you, you'll love him. And you're gonna take your show from the South to the Northeast with him. <laughs> hey, there we go, Tom. Dude, that's awesome. So are you and Bob Russell boys over there? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm understanding how all this works now. We had Bob on the show a while back talking hockey and uh, how he likes to mop the floors and whatnot, you know, literally. Yeah. yeah. Um, so sweet. Okay, well, I will reach out to Pat Smith for sure. What a small world, Tom. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, and Bob Russell, is uh, he's the CEO of Hearing and Speech, as you guys know, and that's one of the Al Siegel member agencies, one of the founding members. Um, and this, this collaboration came together in 1962, and we first opened in 1968 with our first building. So I tell people there was a lot of planning that went into this before it actually became a real thing. And it's something that I've been a part of for quite some time now because uh, I just love the work that we do and how many organizations that we get to support here in the community. And, and Tom, something that you had said during the pandemic that really stuck stuck with me was that the needs of the community really don't go away during the pandemic, right? So the community still, the people that needed those types of services were still there. They didn't just wistfully go away and could stay at home and still receive those types of services. So that really spoke to me. Um, I, I think we, we get comfortable um, and something that you're more comfortable or familiar with is change. Uh, you mentioned how back in the day that uh, when you were working for Gannett for the first 12 years, it was bliss, right? But the last four years started to change what during that experience has helped you to better navigate change and develop trust across your, your current staff that you have there today at Al Siegel? Sure. So, yeah, that, you know, I think what was happening with Gannett in, in terms of managing change is that it, there just wasn't clear direction from the top. And it, and it wasn't that um, it wasn't that they didn't want to provide it. It was just so much uncertainty in the model. So, and, and, you know, I think all of us, you can, you can sense authenticity, mm -hmm. right? And I just, I, I think, you know, a number of people just were questioning the authenticity of the direction and whether or not it was, you know, whether or not it was really tested, researched, believed in. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, the way it applies here and the way I look at it in terms of this organization is we're not a, we're not a global company. We're not a global industry. Um, we have a pretty good handle on what's happening in our community. Uh, and we get great feedback from the, from our agencies that tell us, you know, these are the things that we need to respond to. Um, I think, you know, when you hear directly from clients and you hear directly from families who are receiving services from these member agencies, and they are the ones who provide the direct care services, we provide the buildings and spaces for them to do it in. But when you hear these stories and you realize how, 
profoundly impactful the work is and waiting lists. There's waiting lists for housing. There's waiting lists for services. There's waiting lists for, um, you know, I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, we just prior to the pandemic, but, but during it, we opened uh, a partnership with the University of Rochester Medical Center. Uh, it's a pediatric behavioral health and wellness program. And this is for, you know, young adults, uh, teenagers who are having mental health issues uh, up to and including trying to be successful in committing suicide. And there was a waiting list as we were building this project. And the reality is, you know, I just, I met recently with the director of the program and we were talking about it. And he said, you know, Tom, we still have a waiting list, but if we hadn't built this, we would be overwhelmed right now with what's going on because it's gotten so much more desperate. And there's been so many more incidences because of the pandemic and the isolation that people feel and felt um, it's, you know, I, I say to people, and I think, Kevin, you've heard me say this as your chair of the sports committee, I wish we had never used the term social distancing. I, I, I know there was somebody way smarter than me that coined that phrase and put it out there, but we should have been talking physical distancing. Social distancing is not acceptable. We are, as humans, we need to socialize. We need to be together with people. Uh, we need to be able to give each other hugs. And, and yes, phys physical distancing uh, kept, us, kept us away from that. But um, I, I think that's one of the key elements of what we've learned in the pandemic is you have to be able to lean on people. We have to work together. Um, you cannot isolate or do these things in a silo, especially when things are tough. Yeah. And I love how you uh, use it as an opportunity to co really collaborate with the other executives and the other leaders, because a lot of, I mean, people still have more questions than answers when it comes, when it comes to, to some of the challenges that businesses and organizations alike are, are facing today. Uh, I appreciate you sharing that added insight and, and, and context. And, and I think, uh, Tyler, what did you have next? Dude, I love the, the social distancing. Yeah, what a, what, uh, a, what a gloom, you know? That's a glum lot right there, if you ask me. You know? I don't think you can ever social distance me, man. That, that word bubble doesn't work very well, man. I, right. I met Kevin over Zoom. And I remember I was like, I hung up on him. I was like, that guy's like my best friend, you know, over, over a Zoom. Ooh, but, you know, right. it's, uh, yeah. And, and then let me tell you, Tyler, if you haven't met in person yet, he's a handsome devil in person. <laughs> Three-dimensional, he's all there, you know? <laughs> we have, we yeah. have actually shook hands a couple of times, but yeah, it, was, right. it was amazing what, uh, what types of connections that you could still build even in a digital world. But I love what you're saying about the social side of it. I mean, I think when uh, we're starting to see some of the repercussions of that isolation, like you mentioned, but also some of the uh, beauty in it. I think uh, mental health was something that we never really talked about openly. Uh, and I think you just talked about it from the pediatric side, but now we're talking about it in the workforce. And yep. I think smart organizations and smart leaders are starting to tune into that and understand that wellness is not just physical wellness anymore, where we right. just had to protect the physical well-being of our employees uh, while they were in the walls of our business. How are you building and an, an establishing trust? Because I'm sure, right, during a pandemic, you're being a nonprofit, you start to hear about grants, you see all the money going out the door from the federal government, not sure if your grants might still continue to be there or support you. How did you, I guess, rally the troops? How did you bring everybody with under your roof to make sure that, hey, we don't know what's coming, but I want to be the calm of the storm, basically? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's ongoing work. I, I really do. Uh, my, my take on how you build trust is as much transparency as possible. Um, you know, uh, no hidden agendas and, and, and admit what you don't know. Right. Cause I think people can call, you know, they can say, Hey, you know what? I ain't buying that. Um, but if you say, listen, 
I'm uncertain. I'm not sure this is, you know, this is uncharted territory for me or for all of us, but this is the, this is the direction that we think makes the most sense and why. Um, and then, you know, the other part of it in terms of communication is be open to different ideas, right? Because somebody may say, hey, have we thought about this instead? And I think that's, you know, when you show people that they're empowered to offer creative solutions, when you say to people, hey, I want your voice at the table with mine uh, and I respect your opinion, uh, that's, I think that's how you start to build trust. And then I think more importantly on top of that is the follow through, right? If you, if you say, this is what we're gonna do, you know, and I'll use donors as an example. If we say to donors, look, we've got a project and we need to make this happen. Uh, we need your support. They need to be updated on your, on your progress and then they need to see the final outcome of that, right? They need to see that, hey, we did exactly what we said we were gonna do with, with your investment. And I think that's important that people understand that you know, these are, these are ways that we are good shepherds and stewards of funds and that we tell people that we're gonna follow through and do what we said we were gonna do. Err on the side love. of action, Tyler. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, I love it, Tom. And matter of fact, I've had some epiphanies lately. You know, growing up in the 90s, it's like, you know, first impressions are all that matters. I'm like, dude, where are you on your 181st impression? You know, nice. where is that? Where, who, you know, that's what I've learned as, as, as erring on action, right? Um, you know, everyone can like talk a good talk. I know I can, you know, on a, a first presentation, knock that thing right out of the park and to call it a day is not how it really works, you know? So I, if, I, if I ever had to write a book, it'd probably be called the 181st impression. Tom, if you ever wrote a book, what would it be titled? Still figuring it out. <laughs> <laughs> Work in progress. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly curious, but I got to be honest. There's so, I mean, if you think about, right, just think about like technology and how much that's changed just in the last few years, right? Like I'm blown away by, the, by medicine advances, by the things that, you know, like my kids are so freaking smart. It scares me. You know, I can't do their homework. I can tell you that. Um, and, and, and yet, you know, when you think about like, what's going to happen with artificial intelligence, what's going to happen with, you know, with machine learning and the way we, you know, the way we do work, you know, when you talk about labor shortages and people saying, look, we've got to be creative and find new ways. I'm all about, all right, let's figure that one out. Right. I don't, I don't dismiss the fact that not everybody wants to be a waitress or a waiter or, you know, bus tables or, or work in construction or what have you, but we've got to figure out ways to get these things done because there's a demand for it. So if it requires us to think differently about technology and how to utilize it, I think people just have to be accepting of the fact that, you know what, it might look different and it may be very different experience, but if it delivers for you what you were expecting, uh, then isn't that a good thing? And that's how I'm looking at what we're doing here in the nonprofits. I, you know, I, I'm looking at it saying, hey, maybe, maybe, and you know, we've got executives who are working together on this, but maybe technology comes into play in ways that we've never used it before. But if you can ask Alexa what the weather is, or she can play your favorite song, I think she ought to be able to monitor the, the health of the person that, that she's in the room with, right? Yeah. So Which we've, is got, we've got to figure out ways to harness that type of technology if we can't find the labor to do it. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more, and uh, and that's that's a serious concern when we hear about 1.8 jobs available to to qualified candidates. We just don't have the people anymore. Uh, we lost right. we lost a significant amount of the 55 years and older during the pandemic. They cashed in on their homes. They cashed in on years of intellectual capital themselves, and 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 even social capital. So. 
That's it's really a, an interesting time, but nothing should be off the table. And I love your points about AI and machine learning as 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 what ifs, right? Um, if we have such an abundant need, uh, uh, always being curious is kind of one of those leadership qualities that Tyler will will tell you and attest to is that we hear about it on our show quite often. Um, I think that that curiosity helps us to ask that if, why, when, how, um, where, what will happen. Um, instead of being really focused on, I guess, the results. Um, I think sometimes we get so caught up and yes, we achieved that and that was good. And we rest on our laurels and we really forget on how we achieved that success. Or maybe we have no idea and it was sheer luck. Um, what are some of the things that you really focus on, on, on when, when you're really just the, the first I mean, first couple of days when you start into a leadership position, what recommendations would you give? Because we're hearing the great reshuffle, the rate redesign, right? I'm a new leader. I'm stepping into a new role. What advice would you give to that individual um, on, on some things that they might want to be doing in the first couple of weeks? Yep. Uh, my, my advice and my style, and you know, maybe, maybe it's not for everybody, but my, one of the first things I'm going to do is what do I have, what do I have around me, right? What, what, what's the talent around me? Um, I'm going to, I'm going to get to know people. Uh, we're going to go get a cup of coffee or get some lunch or go grab dinner or a beer or whatever, but I'm going to get to know who's, who's, who's the influencers, who are the folks that are getting things done in the company. Um, and then you're also going to get a sense of, you know, does the culture fit? Uh, with what your vision is for it, right? You know, as you start to talk to people and get a sense of their enthusiasm for the role, um, you know, are we where we want to be? So I'm going to do a lot of listening, uh, uh, not a lot of talking, um, not like this thing here today. Um, and then, uh, and then I'm, and, and then I'm going to start to lay out a plan for folks that they can see and say, hey, you know, here's what I want to do in the first 90 days, right? Mm -hmm. And 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 make it reasonable. You're not going to change the world in 90 days. Um, so Bill Gates can, you know, people, you know, <laughs> Elon Musk can. Um, but in you know, in our world, you've got to be able to show a plan and then say, here's what we're going to work through, right? Um, and then make sure that you've got some buy-in, um, because ultimately, you know, I don't. The best leaders in the world that I've ever interacted with and and had the you know the pleasure to listen to. Uh, none of us, no one ever. And I don't couple myself into that category, uh, but you don't do it alone. You know, there's, there's no such thing as, uh, you know, even the, you know, you want to take the president of the United States and I don't care what elected official that is, that no one runs this country by themselves, right? Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's a giant machine. And in the nonprofits, we just don't have the resources machines, but you have to lean on lots of people and lots of volunteers. Al Siegel is a relatively small company, but we've got an army of volunteers that is quadruple the size of our staff. And that's how things happen. So you've got to be plugged into that too. Wow. Love it. Todd, when did you, when did you realize in your career that, that leverage of relationships, you know, I always read about it until it happened to me. And it was with this guy over here, Kevin, you know, it was, yeah. I'll tell you the story afterwards, but I was like, okay, I get it. You know, yeah. this, this really matters. Do you have any examples for us or when that really hits you right square in the face? Yeah. Um, before I ever went into work uh, for corporate, I owned a small business. So I owned, I owned a small uh, audio and video recording studio right out of college. I wanted to be a music producer and I thought, well, this will be my way to do it. But there's a couple of things that you need. You need more talent than I had and you need more money than I had. Um, but I realized when my partner and I were doing some presentations to some organizations in town, 
we weren't always getting the work, even though we were talented enough to get the work and we were priced competitively to get the work, but we didn't know the right people. Um, and, and, you know, you would, you would make a phone call and say, Hey, what happened? I know we were, you know, you told us we were competitive on the bid. Uh, you know, I know we were right there on the creative because you guys love the creative, that kind of thing. And you would do things on spec, right? And then uh, you'd hear back that, you know, well, this group went with somebody because somebody knew somebody. And, and, and you realize, okay, it's about, you know, it is about relationships, right? It is. And, and in business, in life. Um, so you have to figure out, all right, well, and that doesn't mean that it's, it's not manipulative. It's not trying to take advantage of a, of a personal relationship or what have you. But sometimes it's just that person opening the door. I mean, if you think about how did you get your first job or how do your friends get their jobs? It's almost always somebody says, hey, I know a great gal. You want to hire her. She's smart or, you know. Um, it, that's how it works. And so it is about relationships across the board. And, and, you know, I say all the time to anybody who comes into my office, when we talk about projects, is this going to upset somebody? We don't want to burn any bridges. We live in a circular world. You're going to come back around. Um, and you want to make sure that you treat people the way you want to be treated, because at some point in time, you know, I don't call in favors. I, I, I don't think that that's a way to do business. That's, I, I know some people do. It's not mine. Um, but I, but I think that you, if you treat people correctly and, and, and value them, uh, that comes back to you, uh, when you need it to. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that golden rule has always been something, uh, that I I've, I've helped myself to, because it just makes all the sense in the world and probably why hypocrisy drives me up, up, up a wall, right? <laughs> when sure. it's okay for one to do it and not the other, then no more is it one plus one equals two. It's now one plus question mark equals question mark right yeah yeah uh, you're doing that new math captain look at yeah exactly I, uh, don't get me started on that i have no idea that one is away from 10 which is away from yeah they did it on the news and uh, i don't i couldn't help my kids uh with my their homework either at that at that point so i'm getting nervous tom i forget the memorization that's out the window now now we actually need to understand math and that gets me sweaty so <laughs> yeah. wait, wait, wait till they start telling you about algorithms yeah, great. Yeah, that was that was the pleasure for math when they started bringing in shapes. And I said, Oh, boy, what are we getting into here? Math, math, right. numbers. Uh, last time exactly. I checked. Yes. Something you said that really stuck to me a couple of things, because uh, there are models that I've lived my life by. And, and it sounds like you've had similar experiences, like never burn a bridge, right? I'm always talking about never burning a bridge, because you never know what that bridge could lead to. I focus more on building bridges rather than burning them, regardless of whatever opportunity or how it impacted me on a negative basis, I still uh, refuse to burn bridges. Because for the other fact, you never know when you're going to need that relationship. You never know, never know when you're going to want to reach out to them with a question, concern, challenge, issue, whatever it might be. But it is all about who you know, um, whether we like it or not. Uh, you mentioned the job opportunities. Really, that was the challenge. What I realized out of college was I didn't really network enough. I didn't do enough internships. I didn't really know anybody. And here, my friends and, and others that I saw getting the jobs were the ones that had parents that were a little bit more connected. Tyler and I met through networking. It was just kind of just happenstance. We met each other and it was like love at first sight from a bromance perspective, right? Um, but I want to learn kind of what, what tips are you giving maybe your children, maybe your, your son that is headed into college of what you've learned from building these relationships and these networking opportunities, and really, I guess, how to keep them up because it can be a lot to maintain, 
But what types of advice would you give to the younger generation that is looking to build out their professional network? And that's a fantastic question. Um, you know, I think, I think the first thing is you have to make some time for it, right? You, you, have to, you have to set aside some time. It doesn't have to be every day, but, you know, whether it's once a week or once every couple of weeks, you need to set aside some time to either send an email, send a text, make a phone call to just touch base with people. Um, you know, how are you? What's going on? With no agenda, you know, um, to just genuinely be concerned and, and interested in, in, you know, where people are and what they're doing and how their business is. Uh, I think that's how you, you know, I think that's how you build the relationships. I think that's, you know, even if it's when, you know, Kevin, for instance, you know, if people are coming to a golf, that may be the first time I get to see him in a year, but I want to hear how they're doing. How's, you know, how's, you know, how's your business? How's your family? Um, and yes, it's transactional in that you're there to golf that day or what have you, but it's also a chance to just catch up, give each other a hug, you know, and say, Hey, I'm glad to hear everything's going okay. Or, Hey, I'm sorry to hear about that. You know, if there's a way we can help, please let me know. Um, I think that's how you build your, your relationships and how you can expand your network. Um, I, when I interviewed for this position, there was a question uh, about my, my, my style. And, and one of the questions was, um, Tom, you could be accused of being too nice a guy. <laughs> how, would, how would you respond to that? This is an interview question from, from the search committee, right? And that was a question. And I said, you know, I wouldn't want anyone to, I wouldn't want anyone to confuse being nice with not having the ability to make difficult decisions and deliver difficult news. I can deliver difficult news. I can make tough decisions and I'm, you know, I'm capable of supporting those decisions and backing it up with my actions. But if at the end of my run, if my epitaph is, you know, here lies a really nice guy, I'm going to be okay with that too. <laughs> yeah. You know? So I think, you know, you, you, you just try to, you know, you just try to be authentic with your friends, with, with your colleagues, you know, and you have different relationships in at work than you do outside of work, right? Um, and, I, and I recognize that there's always kind of a balance between, you know, how professional are you and, and what kinds of relationships do you have? But um, I think if you treat people similarly, uh, I think that's, you know, that's one of those key things um, that will carry you forward as you build your network. And, you know, your network grows as you grow. One of the things that's awesome to hear you say that in summary, it, it grows as you grow, because that couldn't be more clear to, to Tyler and I. And we grew a lot during the pandemic. And you talk about professionally and personally, which is is, is really that that growth on both fronts. And, and again, you still have to establish that trust with them. Uh, Tyler and I always joke about how long uh, you can you have a conversation with somebody that you just met without asking them where they work. Um, it's, it's like first nature for, I don't know why in America, where, where you work is the first question that we ask people, like it matters or that dictates how the rest of that conversation is going to go. Because basically what you said, if you have a hidden agenda, it's going to come out through the questions that you ask or you don't ask. So I really, really love that, Tom. Um, you're celebrating kind of, we got a few more minutes here, but uh, Al Siegel is celebrating a big year. Can you kind of touch on what's going on this year and what, what we're celebrating and why it's such a big annual event for Al Siegel? Yeah, so this is the 60-year anniversary of our founding. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we were uh, founded in 1962, 
uh, by a gentleman by the name of Justin Bigder. Uh, for Tyler, who is not here in Rochester, Justin Bigder is one of these iconic Rochester characters. He is uh, a 90 plus year old attorney who still goes to work every day dressed in his suit. Uh, he may be one of the most brilliant men to ever walk the planet, uh, but he had this idea that you could bring these uh, agencies who are all scattered throughout Rochester in less than ideal space together under one roof. And what he envisioned was this fully accessible facility that would have things that they couldn't have on their own, a gymnasium, warm water therapy pools, a cafeteria, shared common spaces and, and conference and meeting spaces that obviously, you know, collectively you could, you could get support for, but you couldn't do it if you were an independent agency or out there trying to do it just by yourself. Um, the, the really key thing about this is that that was 1962. We started with one building in 1968. So it took six years of planning and fundraising. And we opened in spite of the fact that we were still $200,000 shy on a capital wish for the building. So I've said to people, you know, we didn't open wealthy uh, and we've been constantly chasing ourselves ever since. But we've gone from that one building to 20 buildings and 650,000 square feet of real estate on six campuses. So uh, it's a growth story and it's really a growth story about the agencies and what they've been doing and what they needed from Al Siegel in response to that. It hasn't necessarily always been about Al Siegel's desire to grow, but it's been the fact that the model works more that, you know, the more uh, services that could come under the umbrellas of each of these agencies allowed them to expand and need more space. And so that's, you know, that's really what we've been positioned for. And then we've been extremely fortunate in two respects. One, um, you know, we're built around the notion of people helping people with disabilities and special needs. And the agencies here do fantastic work. And, and there's a resilience in the, in the client base and in the customers and in the folks that services that inspire everybody to come to work and keep doing it. So that's, you know, that's one piece. And then the other is we're an extremely generous community. Um, you know, Rochester, New York really stands out. I think it leads uh, per capita in United Way gifts uh, throughout the country. Um, so we've been very fortunate to be part of, uh, you know, a community that embraced this idea, um, maybe not initially, um, and, you know, initially I think there was a little bit of a renegade spirit and, you know, a little bit of the not in my backyard kind of thing, but uh, once it opened and people saw what it was and the good work that was happening, we've been very, very fortunate to have continuous support. So 60 years done, we're celebrating that anniversary this year. Uh, we've got a number of events planned, but in particular, we've got one planned for later in the summer where we're gonna bring a bunch of friends into uh, one of our campuses and, and just offer an array of games and entertainment and music and fun, uh, family friendly, friendly inclusive, because we've always been about inclusion here at Al Siegel. And uh, just a celebration of the success so far. And uh, you know, fingers crossed and prayers that we'll continue to do it for another 60 years. I, I have no doubt with, uh, they keep selecting great leadership like yourself and obviously some of the other uh, individuals that I know there, Christine and Deb, you got some great, great people surrounded around you. And I think it all starts with, with your leadership. Um, one of the last things that I wanted to kind of just ask as, as we're wrapping up is, um, you talk about this 60 years. And, and Tyler and I are, are we, we like to think about the future. Where, what, would, what would success look, for you, look like for yourself and for Al Siegel in 10 years from now? Where would you like to see Al Siegel in 10 years? Sure. So for me, uh, organizationally, I want to I wanna make sure that we've positioned some people for success for transition here 10 years from now. I, you know, I'd like to think that we've got two or three people on the team now that could be in leadership or higher level positions than they are currently. 
Uh, I'd like to think that our reach would be uh, extended beyond what it is today. Uh, I would love nothing more than to partner with somebody like Pat Smith on an, an idea like this in other parts of the country. Um, and, and I think that's a possibility. Um, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the only limit you have is your vision and the resources to make it happen. So I, I think, you know, unfortunately, the number of people who are requiring services is climbing. Um, so we need to be positioned for that. But I would love to be able to say this is such a great model. We should replicate it in, in more places through New York. Uh, certainly, I would love to see it be more of a national model in terms of actually having a footprint in more national places. Uh, I don't know if I'll see that on my watch, but I think that's what you try to build for, right? Um, and then, you know, the other part is me personally, I want to make sure that my, you know, my next 10 years are having an impact with, with staff and leaving a, a mark uh, for the work that we've been doing. You know, we, we've got a lot of growth yet to accomplish. We've still got building to do. Um, but I but I also want to make sure that when I leave, I've left it in a better place than how I got it. And I got it in really good shape. So <laughs> can't complain. And you're making the impact that it's okay to be nice, Tom. I love that. You know, when I was uh, doing some cold calling up in Rochester, I was in Victor on Main Street Fishers. People would be like, dude, you're not from here. And I'm like, dude, I had a meals for lunch. There you, you go. Know, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, Tom, you've been awesome, man. You're, you have an awesome laid back, just, just energy to you, man. But you, you, we can tell you like to get it done too, man. Um, and I think that the last question I always like to ask people, and I think I, I might have a hint, is uh, what, kind of, what gets you out of bed? You know, you guys make such an impact the stories you've been telling. Um, what, what gets Tom O'Connor out of bed nowadays after all the success you've already had? What keeps you going? Uh, I said it earlier, I'm constantly curious. I, I think, you know, I'm nowhere near the best me yet. And, I, and I'm still working to try to be that. Um, and, and it, but it's not, it's not about me. It's about what I can do here and what we can accomplish together. Uh, I've got so many dedicated people work with me and I'm inspired by them each and every day I would I would be embarrassed if I couldn't find the energy enthusiasm to come into this place and do my job I would be embarrassed so it's uh, I don't want to be embarrassed you know I'm, uh, can't, can't happen <laughs> love it he, he 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 doesn't have to win but he hates to lose I, I, that was the other <laughs> comment that you made earlier that that I, I see that right and that's that nice uh, all kidding aside but being nice used to be a weakness, right? Or viewed as a weakness in business and just go back to that interview question. Is that a question that we would ask in an interview today? Probably not because it would assume that we're not emotionally intelligent or aware. Uh, some of those other new keywords, but Tom, yeah. your, your confidence, uh, knowing you obviously outside of just this podcast, um, I really just want to say thank you so much for all the great leadership, all the great work that you do, not only at El Siegel and for the supporting agencies, but beyond that. I know you're making a difference every day in the lives of your people. Um, and in turn, I think you're having a, a, a big impact on the community. So leaders like you, I, I feel very lucky to have here on the 585. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be asked to participate. You guys are a riot. Um, I, I, if you would have told me to bring a coach's whistle, I have one. I would have <laughs> could have done a trio thing. <laughs> yeah, these whistles have uh, they've been they've been around. Like I said, I just dusted mine off from my backpack that I found at the bottom of the backpack. But uh, Tom, this was a blast. I had a, I had a lot of fun, uh, and uh, can't wait for that golf tournament. What on June thirteenth, right? Absolutely. And uh, Tyler, you know you ought to figure out a way to come up here and show us if you got game, man. Yeah, I mean, you got to get busy living or get busy dying, right, Tom? Right. We'll, we'll hold you a spot. And, and look, 
Kevin will only film your first five shots. Oh, I yeah. only have a driver, man. This is, I, just, <laughs> I get off the tee and I, I might be putting for Eagle, but I don't care about putting. Well, hey, <laughs> you, you, you fit right in here. Yeah. Drive for show, putt for dough, baby. That's how model you, you goes. Got it. You got it. Sir. And, awesome. And, and guess what? Nice In our tournament, there's there's food and drinks and everything on almost every hole, so you just can't go wrong. No. There you go, man. I'm all about it, Tom. I, I'll, all I'll right. get with Kevin on that and see what we can work out. All right. <laughs>